is something about the tragic that lends itself to music, providing you're the listener and not the subject. Jackson C. Franks was one such artist who was a singer-songwriter of the 60s folk scene and was highly regarded by his contemporaries, but he only recorded one album and died in obscurity, penniless and homeless. Of course there were others, Nick Drake, Tim Buckley, Tim Hardin, but his was a true hard-luck story. I'm focusing here on two artists, and I'm acutely aware that a street child working in the streets of Kolkata and millions of other nameless people suffer daily along with billions, billions of others where the obstacles and barriers of prejudice and discrimination are too great to overcome. But today the focus is on what I term damaged singers or troubled troubadours. was a track from Frank's one and only self-titled 1965 album recorded in London and produced by the then relatively unknown Paul Simon. Frank was born Jackson Carey Jones on March the 2nd 1943 in Buffalo, New York, but later took on the surname of his stepfather. His musical story begins in 1954 when a furnace at his school exploded killing most of his classmates and seriously injuring Frank, who suffered burns to over 50% of his body. He was 11 years old and lost his then-girlfriend about whom he would later write the song Marlene. It was during his stay in hospital that his teacher brought him an acoustic guitar and he developed his finger-picking style and sound to keep him occupied during his recovery. He was a fan of Elvis and in 1957 his mother took him to Memphis to meet Elvis at a meet and greet event for the children injured in the school fire. When he was 21, he received a not insignificant insurance payout for his injuries, enough for him to catch a boat to England. Catch a boat to England, baby, maybe to Spain Wherever I have gone, wherever I've been and gone Wherever I have gone, the blues are all the same Frank's voice was rich and accompanied by accomplished finger-picking to songs which had good melody. His music fitted in well with the London folk scene and he built up his repertoire including Blues Run The Game which soon became the standard performed by Simon and Garfunkel, Nick Drake, Burke Yanch amongst others but his album which came out on Columbia barely sold. The late John Renburn 
who was the guitarist of the folk group Pentangle, said of Frank, he was the opposite of a loud American, as it were. He wasn't promoting himself or blagging at all. I was knocked out whenever I heard him play. He owned a Martin guitar which was unheard of in those days. Jackson Frank was a lot more highly thought of on the scene than Paul Simon was. But Paul Simon rose to fame and prominence and Jackson Frank just dropped into oblivion. With his insurance money spent on cars and hotel rooms, Frank returned to Woodstock, except for a brief trip back to Erm to Britain in 1968, when he recorded a session for John Peel and toured with Fairport Convention. This was the last that many of his friends would see of him. A few years later, Renborn did receive an unexpected letter from him. It said, Hello, Toff. I hear you're still playing and doing my numbers. It would be great to see you. Renborn said it was rather touching. It looked like it was typed on a typewriter that was all busted up because the keys were all over the place. The address was Simmons Court, Woodstock. Simmons Court turned out to be an institution. A piece written by Frank for Folk News explained that while writing and recording my second album, personal and private affairs forced me to break off, which was unfortunate. This didn't fully reflect events. On returning to the USA, Frank had married Elaine Sedgwick, a former model, and they had a son and a daughter. After the boy died of cystic fibrosis and the marriage failed, Frank went into a deep depression and was hospitalised. In the 1970s, Renborn was in Woodstock shortly after receiving the letter and tried to trace Frank by describing him to friends. I was told there was a guy who was odd, even by Woodstock standards, who went around looking at traffic lights. It was Frank, but aside from a brief phone conversation, the two friends didn't meet. It wasn't until the 90s that they met up again in Buffalo. He was very overweight, looked really wrecked, his eyes were all fucked up. He had some gizmo that had, he flipped around his head like an antenna. It was a shock to see him, but we were sat around and all the old chat came back, and he was as easy as you like. But what happened in between was a cruel tale. Frank had left Woodstock for New York in search of Paul Simon, who Frank believed owned his publishing, and had suppressed his songs. He ended up living on the streets for years. There was one final tragic event in his life when some kids with an air rifle took a shot at the homeless Frank and blinded him in one eye. He ended his days in sheltered accommodation in Woodstock and died in 1999. Another figure who is largely forgotten is little Willie John, whose career was derailed by a violent act, act and his death remains shrouded in mystery. Little Willie John is regarded as Detroit's first solo R&B star and was billed as the Prince of the Blues. He did have success as a teenager 
and charted five songs including the number one hit Fever. These were the first of 14 recordings that charted from 1956 to 1961. Willie was born in Cullendale, Arkansas on November the 15th, 1937, the fifth child born to Lily and Murtis John. The family moved to Detroit in 1941 and even though the city's black population increased from 149,000 in 1940 to over 300,000 by 1950, Detroit was still a segregated city and their project house was originally built as temporary housing for wartime workers but by the mid-40s the area had been set aside for Detroit's black population and the area became known as Cardboard Valley. Their house was located across the street from the Stubbs family home. Levi Stubbs, later of the Four Tops, was a boyhood friend of Willie John and would have seen his friend's occasional epileptic seizures and that could be brought on by fatigue and stress. In later years, when he was touring, um, the seizures would cause difficulties, especially if he wasn't eating well or if he was drinking too much or taking too many drugs. Detroit was home to many black churches and became a major stop on the gospel circuit and ministers like the Reverend C.L. Franklin, Aretha's father, would host visiting gospel stars such as the Dixie Hummingbirds, the Mighty Clouds of Joy and the Soul Stirrers featuring Sam Cooke. These black Detroit churches would become the home for a host of local singers, gospel quartets and choirs. Willie discovered the potential in his voice as a six-year-old member of the United Five, a gospel group that included his four older siblings. Willie's powerful voice was rated by the church attendees and resulted in the group being added to gospel programmes in Detroit that often featured some of the touring stars of the genre. Along with gospel, he was heavily influenced by the jazz and blues being played on the radio and in the record shop on Hastings Street which was the street of De Detroit's Black Entertainment Centre. From the age of 12, Willie would sneak out of his bedroom window at night and make his way to the taste of bright lights of Detroit's theatres and clubs, where the new music was trending. At this time, amateur talent shows were popular and Willie took part along with future artists Jackie Wilson and Smokey Robinson. In 1952, Willie was finally discovered by band leader and King's record scout Johnny Otis at the Paradise Theatre, where Hank Ballard and Jackie Wilson also performed at the same show. Willie recorded his fir first King single, The Bluesy All Around the World, with session players that included champion Jack Dupre on piano and became a big hit. The success put Willie at the top of the bill at the Apollo Theatre before going on tour again. His second single, Need Your Love So Bad, was largely written by Willie's older brother, Murtis Jr., while he had been stationed in Korea and charted in early 1956. However, his biggest hit, Fever, was released in April 1956. Fever. When you kiss me, fever. 
Fever topped Billboard's R&B chart for five weeks and became Willie's first crossover hit when it went to number 24 on the Billboard Hot 100. Two years later in 1958, Peggy Lee recorded a version of the song which was a bigger pop hit than Willie's and was also nominated for Record of the Year and Song of the Year at the first Grammy Awards in 1959 and is widely regarded as Lee's signature song. Elvis Presley recorded a version for his Elvis's Back album in 1960. Unfortunately, Willie didn't come up with a follow-up hit to match the success of Fever, and for the next few years his next singles failed to have an impact. In 1957, Willie met dancer Darlene Bonner and married that summer in Detroit and had their first son Kevin the following year. After Little Richard quit rock and roll, Willie hired his band The Upsetters to back him on the road to make his live act even more dynamic and returned to the charts in the spring of 1958 with his classic ballad, Talk To Me. Willie's older sister, Mabel John, had begun working with songwriter Berry Gordy Jr., who had reportedly offered Willie some of his songs, but Willie turned them down. Jackie Wilson, on the other hand, took Gordy's songs and had four consecutive top ten singles. After Berry Gordy formed Motown, Mabel John became the first female soul artist to be signed by the company. Don't you know? The rocking Leave My Kitten Alone was Willie's first hit of 1959 and was a big favourite of John Lennon and the Beatles, who often performed it live in 1961 and 1962 and recorded a cover version in 1964. In 1960, Willie's second son, Keith, was born in late January. While Willie continued to record some great songs and had some success, this eventually dried up and the charts were dominated by a different sound such as new Motown artists and Phil Spector's wall of sound recordings and new vocal groups like the Four Seasons and the Beach Boys. The years of heavy drinking and drugging were also taking their toll and Willie encountered the law when he was taken to court for racking up almost a thousand dollars in long distance charges on a phony credit card. He also was known to brandish a gun, especially if he had been drinking. As his record sales dwindled, he was no longer getting the best gigs and he was missing more and more scheduled appearances and with an erratic schedule, his band The Upsetters began backing up Sam Cooke and other artists. Things got worse after he split with his backing group and after a weekend booking in October of 1964 at a rundown club called The Magic Inn in Seattle, he was partying with a couple of women and ended up at an illegal drinking establishment. An argument ensued and an ex-con punched Willie, who apparently retaliated by stabbing the man in the chest with a steak knife, resulting in his death. 
Well, he was booked on suspicion of murder. He pleaded not guilty and posted a $10,000 bond. Well, he continued to perform while out on bail and awaiting his trial. By all accounts, the eventual trial was something of a fiasco. Multiple witnesses changed their stories, and Willie's defence attorney did not pursue a self-defence verdict in a situation where the victim was almost twice the size of Willie. In addition, there were no witnesses to the actual stabbing. Instead, his primary defence was that Willie suffered an epileptic seizure and couldn't remember the events of the fateful evening. His defence attorney also did not seem to adequately prepare Willie for the witness stand, where he came off as arrogant and boastful to the middle-class all-white jury. Although he had been charged with second-degree murder, Willie was convicted on the lesser charge of manslaughter. Pending sentencing, Willie posted a $20,000 bond and left the state to fulfil some tour dates and generate some much-needed cash before he was due back in court. His attorney filed for a new trial, but that was denied. He then filed an appeal, but claimed he couldn't find Willie to get the $1,500 deposit. Willie was returned to Seattle by federal marshals in May and shortly thereafter dismissed his defence attorney. The appeal was dismissed on May the 6th for lack of action. While he was awaiting sentencing, Willie signed a recording contract with Capitol Records. He had not recorded for King in 1965 and thought that his contract with his old company was over. Willie recorded 11 tracks for an album, but before he had a chance to overdub his vocals, King Records threatened to sue Capitol, claiming that Willie was still under contract. As a result, Capitol put Willie's recordings on the shelf in their vault, where they would remain for over 40 years. Willie was sentenced to 8 to 20 years at the Washington State Penitentiary. The sentence was viewed extremely harsh, and a letter-writing campaign asking for his parole was undertaken. But Willie died unexpectedly in the prison hospital on May 26, 1968. The cause of death listed in the prison medical examiner's report on his death certificate was a heart attack. Just four months earlier, Willie had written uh, his wife saying that he was in good health and since he had no apparent history of heart disease, it seemed unusual and suspicious that a man of 30 years would so suddenly succumb to a heart attack. Although the death certificate stated that an autopsy was performed to determine the cause of death, there is no copy of any such autopsy report. There were rumours of murder and conspiracies, but the mysteries surrounding his death will most likely never be solved. By 1995, Little Willie John had been nominated seven times for induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame without being voted in. But his eighth nomination was successful. The Hall of Fame's class of 1996 included Willie along with Pink Floyd, David Bowie, The Velvet Underground, Gladys Knight and the Pips and the Shirelles. Stevie Wonder gave Willie's induction speech and shared that as a little boy he grew up listening to the music of Little Willie John on the radio. So there you have it, two great artists but now largely forgotten. And I think it's true to say that there is music and then has the music business and the two are definitely not the same let me hear tell me dear
to know 